Good morning. Good morning, Journey Church. It's good to have everyone here today. If you are a guest, uh, it's great to have you in our worship time as well. And I do want to do mention something. Uh, I think Tony alluded to this also, but uh, uh, we have our baptistry uh, is completed. And I want to thank uh, Rodney if he's in the room. Yeah. He didn't... Um, Rodney, our director of operations, he didn't do it all, but he made sure it got done because I was on him all the time, messing with him. But it's beautiful, and we're going to uh, uh, inaugurate it. We're going to initiate it, whatever it is today. Uh, we have some baptisms that are already planned. And what I wanted to say in all of that is that if you uh, have not given your life to Christ, if you have not been obedient in baptism, today would be the perfect day to do that, uh, the first day for a brand-new baptism, uh, baptistry and a uh, brand-new start for you, and we'd love to do that. And we're going to give you a time at the end of the service. Sometime we, you know, we, we know what we ought to do, but we put it off. And so maybe if that's you here today and you've been thinking about it, but you put it off, today is the day. I want to meet you down here. I'll give you more instruction a little bit later. Uh, we have everything ready. We would love to share uh, with you today in baptism if you have not done so. And uh, we're looking forward to that to the end of the service. But right now, uh, we're going to be talking, continuing our study uh, that we've been in for a few weeks now called How to Bible. You know, in his writings, the Apostle Paul warns of a falling away of many believers. He warned and said that a man of sin will rise up with seemingly powerful abilities, will work signs and miracles, and will have a false gospel. And he says, not just a person's individual uh, charisma, but that Satan will empower this man of sin, and many people will be deceived. And we might ask the question, well, how will people be deceived when we have God's Word, when we have the Bible here in our hands? We can read it. We can see what it says. And, and when the man of sin comes, he will oppose that. But how could we possibly believe him? And the answer, obviously, is because many people will not believe the Bible. You know, we've been talking in this study about the fact that the Bible is the most published book in the world, and yet there are many people who have more than one copy but have never read it, do not constantly or regularly read the Bible. And so the, the Bible reminds us, the Apostle Paul says in response to this problem, he said, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not, <clears throat> will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. The Apostle Paul says there will be a time when people, will, their ears will itch to hear what they want to hear, not the truth. The sound doctrine will not be uh, accepted publicly by, and by the majority of people. But he says, you need to make sure that you ground yourself in the Word of God. And so there's a warning here that there will be a time that we should expect this. And sure enough, we've seen that prediction come true. In fact, many times down through history, people have come up against to oppose the Bible. But today we see it as well. Many churches are abandoning historical and orthodox Christianity and embracing what is called progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. Because it not only rejects the authority of God's Word in many areas, but it also rejects Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. And we're not just talking about traditional teachings here. We're talking about rejecting the Bible as the ultimate and final authority in life and truth. And here's the thing about some of these folks. They seem to feel sorry for those of us who still believe the Bible. I mean, honestly, they almost look at us like we checked our brains at the door 
and we're kind of ignorant. We're kind of, you know, uh, deserve to be pitied because of that. But I want to remind you of something that while Bible-believing people might be the majority, minority now, remember that the majority is almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. Remember back in Noah's day, when Noah built the ark, and of all the many people, multitudes, thousands, hundreds of thousands, we don't know how many people lived back then, but only eight people were saved because they believed God's word. Remember when Jesus said that the way to destruction is broad and many will find it, but the way to eternal life is narrow and few will find it. The majority is almost always wrong. I want to be one of those minority, those people who believe in the word of God, who cling to it and accept it as a final authority of truth. So I encourage you to take heart, keep the faith. God's still on his throne. The word of God is just as relevant and true today as it was the day when it was written. And so what I want to encourage you to do today is, uh, and begin today, but for this week and next, to try to encourage you that you can believe the Bible. We're going to talk about how you can believe it. The Bible is reliable and is true, dependable. You can trust the Bible. And we're going to look at a lot of evidences in the next couple of weeks uh, that will help uh, assure you that what you believe about the Bible is true. And, and, you know, sometimes the people will ask you, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know that it's true what it says there? One of the accusations in attacking the reliability of the Bible is that the Bible has, uh, has been copied many times. The Bible is an old book. We acknowledge that. Been copied so many times. Was the Bible really based on event that's happening? Was, was it really based on eyewitness testimony? Or was it just stories that people had heard about and then they wrote down long after they supposedly happened or occurred? And really that question, you know, it seemed like a good question, to be honest with you. It's all about textual credibility. How credible is the Bible itself? And you know, these might seem like good questions, to be honest with you, and and difficult thing to really prove, but the reality is that it's very easy to answer. That question is like an easy one for people who study this, not for most of us, but for people who study it, it's really an easy question because the accuracy of any uh, ancient document is verified by the number of documented manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts that have been preserved. In other words, that's how you know if something is really accurate. It has to have more than one source, and it has to be proven in multiple ways. For example, there are a lot of other ancient manuscripts about the time of the Bible, There are nine to 10 good manuscripts of Caesar's book or his writings called Gaelic Wars. Nine to 10 copies or manuscripts in existence. And the oldest of those manuscripts date back to about 900 years after Caesar's time. So yeah, they just kept copying that. And the oldest they have is about 900 years after Caesar died, after he wrote it. There are less than 10 copies of Plato's writings, original writings, And the oldest one of those that we have is 1,400 years after he wrote them. So the copies were brought down 1,400 years after he died. Does anybody question whether Plato's writings really wrote that or whether Caesar really wrote that book? Probably not. Nobody questions that. Now, how do those things stack up to the Bible? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, There aren't eight or ten copies of the Bible. There are actually over 5,000 ancient manuscripts 5,000 ancient manuscripts that support the New Testament alone. And many of them are not a 1,000 years after they were written, but most of them are about 50, and some are as short as 25 years after the time that they occurred. For example, the Magdalene Papyrus from the book of Matthew is only about 25 years after uh, Jesus lived. 
And we have all of those documents that are there. There's a copy of it, just pieces of it up there. As you can imagine, um, much of it is pieces and is very fragile. In 1947, something pretty cool happened. The famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Most of us don't remember that. But they, these uh, scrolls were found, and they represented every Old Testament book except Esther, the only one. You know, I didn't, I've heard about the scrolls. I didn't know a lot about them, but there actually, there were 972 documents found, many of them complete documents, ancient scrolls, 11 different caves. They had been hid, hidden when the Romans came through. They hid the, 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 the Bible so it wouldn't be destroyed, and they had been lost for years and years. And the shepherd boy was throwing rocks in a cave, and he heard something break, and he went in, and they began to discover all of these Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when they got these and they realized they were copies or they were uh, manuscripts of old documents of the Bible, the skeptics got really glee gleeful. They're like, let's go, let's compare them and see how far off the modern Bible is. Well, guess what? What they discovered was that instead of revealing the Bible had been changed over the years and through various copies, they discovered that the Bible was amazingly accurate. And in fact, many of the archaeologists became Christians because they had to acknowledge this was unbelievable, this much accuracy over all that time. Scholars unanimously agree that the Bible is the most dependable ancient document of all history in terms of textual credibility. Even if they don't believe it, they have to admit, man, it's hard to believe that the, something retains so accurate and so credible down through so many years. Well, what about historical accuracy? You know, it's one thing to say, well, it's, it's the same thing it was written, but did what the Bible says happen really happen? We have the words of the original writers, but did they tell the truth or did they just make this up? Now, you and I would not know the difference, obviously. I don't think there's a lot of scholars, Bible scholars in the room. I'm certainly not one. We wouldn't know the difference, but let's listen to some contemporary writers talk about it, specifically about eyewitness testimony, which, by the way, is the most accurate evidence of all kinds. So I got a short clip I want to show you here of some people that do know what they're talking about this. Let's watch this the scholars of the first century that the Gospels were actually attempts to write biographies of Jesus. Now, not in the modern sense, because the Gospels are not particularly interested in his early years. But when it comes to Jesus' adult life and his activities, these are biographies. They're very clearly attempts by eyewitnesses to describe exactly what Jesus said and did. And the consensus of New Testament scholarship has moved in that direction. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke's Gospel begins with a prologue. It's actually one of the finest Greek sections in the whole New Testament. Uh, Luke was clearly a literary artist. Uh, but in that prologue, he points out that he has carefully investigated um, the material that he presents in the Gospels, that he's checked with eyewitness accounts, those who are actually present. If you, you read that prologue and you see this is the work of a historian. This was someone who has, has done his research. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You have to understand that people in the first century valued eyewitness testimony. And this is why, from the second century on, 
It was important to the early church fathers that the people who were alleged to have written the Gospels actually wrote them and that they were eyewitnesses of the things they wrote. We have actually very early attestation of the authorship of the Gospels. The early church father Papias, for example, as recorded by the church historian Eusebius, identifies Mark's Gospel as essentially the eyewitness account of, of Peter. Well, Papias was a disciple of the Apostle John, so we are only one generation removed from Jesus himself. That's a pretty close testimony and strongly suggesting that, in fact, the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. Now, of course, it's not what you would have seen if you had a video camera there, because after all, if you put a video camera on a street corner, even in Washington, you'd get politicians coming to and fro. You wouldn't actually have a story that would make sense. You'd have a string of random, unsorted events. That doesn't mean that none of it happened, that it's all made up. It's just to acknowledge what is blindingly obvious, that it has been edited and no doubt shaped by the needs of the community, because people tell the sort of stories that they want to tell, because this matters to us urgently here and now. Most historians date Jesus' birth between the years 7 and 4 BC, and his death no later than AD 33. Jesus' public ministry began with the choosing of his disciples and lasted approximately three years, culminating in the Passion Week and his trial and death. Scholars generally agree that the Gospel of Mark was written first sometime between the years 60 and 75 in the first century. Matthew and Luke were probably authored shortly after, followed by the Gospel of John. The New Testament Gospels are by far our earliest and most reliable records of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, all of the New Testament Gospels were written in the first century. Not only are they remarkably close to the events themselves, but in fact, eyewitnesses are still around. If they were passing on untruths, if they were not passing on reliable history, then we would expect um, eyewitnesses to say, wait a minute, this isn't what happened. Um, but eyewitnesses are around. Eyewitnesses could confirm what they said. All of the gospel writers either were eyewitnesses or interviewed eyewitnesses uh, to gain the information that they gained about Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah, that's in a uh, documentary by Lee Strobel talking about called A Case for Christ. So, I don't know if you're into that, but you can, you can watch that if you want to. But, but just kind of proof that there's good evidence to believe the eyewitnesses. Archaeology is another way that we can determine the Bible record is historically accurate. Sir William Ramsey of uh, Oxford University is one of the greatest and most respected archaeologists of all time. He conducted a thorough examination of the Bible and has concluded that the writers of the Bible were among the best historians who had ever lived. Dr. William Albright of John Hopkins University agreed uh, as do many other historians. Archaeology continues to reveal evidence down through the years, evidence after evidence that supports the Bible narrative. For example, uh, the book of Genesis tells us about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that were destroyed because of sexual sin. But the problem is for many, many years, uh, for uh, centuries, no one had found any evidence of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then one day in the archaeologist's discovery, they, just, they found two cities on the southwest corner of the Dead Sea that had been destroyed by fire and by something like a meteor from heaven at a place called Bab el-Drah that very closely described what those cities, where they would be and what they would be like, how they would be destroyed. Another example of archaeology proof is King David. He was a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. He was an ancestor of Jesus, 
there didn't seem to be any uh, evidence of his kingdom or David until one day in 1993, they found pieces of a 3,000-year-old monument stone that were found that had the inscriptions about the house, the king of the house of David. And I think there's a slide of that. That little stone up there is a part of that, that they began to discover this through archaeology. And what about evidence of the New Testament? Well, in the mid-1980s, there's a severe drought that lowered the level of the Sea of Galilee to a new shoreline. And a couple of brothers were walking around out there, and they stumbled upon the remains of a large fishing boat that had been buried in the mud. They dug it up carefully, discovered that it was about, and dated it about 2,000 years ago, which would be the time of Christ. And that was very significant because um, skeptics have said that there was never a boat that size on the Sea of Galilee. You know, Jesus talked about being in a boat with his 12 disciples, and they said there were no boats that size on the Sea of Galilee, but they discovered this 2,000-year-old boat called the Galilee Boat, and it, and it describes exactly what the Bible speaks of. Tony said he saw this boat when he was over in Israel a couple years ago. Now, many other items that, re, that support the biblical record have been found as well. The burial box of Caiaphas, the high priest who, who uh, put Jesus on trial among the Sanhedrin, um, proof of the Philistine Empire around the time of King David, inscriptions of Pontius Pilate, the one who condemned Jesus to death. Here's the big deal about that. There's a lot of evidence. Here's the big deal. There's never been an archaeological discovery that has proven to refute the Bible claim. Not everything in the Bible, obviously, has been proven, but nothing has ever been found that accurately disputes what the Bible has to say. They may boast when they're first found. That's what we hear about it. But then down the road, they found to be false. We never hear about that part. Along that line, have you ever noticed that every time somebody makes a discovery of this sort, they immediately claim that it refutes the Bible? New evidence that disputes the Bible. That's what the headline says, right? And the reason for that is because the media loves the sensational headline-grabbing news, and they use it to sell books and newspapers and interviews. And they use that to get attention, to detract from Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard of this group, but there's one of the groups that's called the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar. In 1985, a man by the name of Robert Funk gathered together a group of panelists who sought media attention for their highly skeptical view of the historical accuracy of the Bible. So you got a group of people who want to disprove the Bible. They come together and they call themselves the Jesus Seminar. That sounds very scholarly, right? They're going to look at the Bible and they're going to determine, is it true or not? And they decided, they declared they were going to spend many years looking at what Jesus said and did and deciding if it's true or not. And, and they had a system of beads that they would use about whether each verse of the Bible account was true. If it were true, they would put in a red bead that Jesus said that or did that. If he probably did, it would be a pink bead. If he probably didn't, it would be gray. And if he definitely didn't, it would be black. A very high-tech way of determining is the Bible accurately, but that's what they did. Now, keep in mind that these are a group of skeptics. They are not real scholars of the New Testament. There are no New Testament faculty members from Yale, Princeton, Duke, Vanderbilt, or any other conservative university or organization. There are about 75 wannabe scholars who built their own platform to evaluate the teachings of Jesus. But look at these people. A fourth of them don't teach at all. A fourth of them don't have a real doctorate. Most who do teach, teach at junior colleges. Some of them have no background in biblical studies at all. One of them, for example, is a man named Paul Verhoeven, whose claim to fame is he directed the movie RoboCop. 
These are the scholars that are evaluating the truth of the Bible. Obviously, a bunch of, bunch of uh, skeptics, right? But you compare this to the 6,000 strong members of the Society of Biblical Literature who have looked at the Bible honestly and give their approval to the New Testament narrative. You know what? Have you ever noticed that skeptics love the attention the media gives them? They love it whenever they come up with something and they claim to refute the Bible. But there's also a lot of money in that as well. If you want to get rich, then write a best-selling book, a critique of Christianity or the Bible, and announce it right before Christmas or right before Easter. I mean, say something far out like, hey, did you know Jesus was married? Did you know Jesus had a family, had children? Did you know Jesus didn't really die on the cross? Did you know Jesus was gay? Did you know there's a lost gospel? Throwing things up, just seeing what sticks to the wall, that's the culture we live in today. Now, the reality is there's always been skeptics down through time. There were skeptics in Jesus' day. Every now and then, somebody will discover and dust off a, a book or a writing that is contradictory to the Bible record. But those have been debunked and exposed years and years ago. You can write anything you want. It doesn't make it true. And just because you dust it off and, and discover it doesn't mean it has any value. There is credibility in the Bible that is trustworthy. The gospels on the life of Jesus were verified and held to be true because they were written within 25 to 50 years of his life. That's what the scholars said just a few moments ago. And at that point, there were still people who were alive who had seen and heard Jesus. When Paul wrote the epistle of Corinthians, he said, there are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord who are still alive. A lot of them are still around today. They were the ones who were witnesses and who were turning the world upside down with their faith. And then when the church came together and they said, we need to collect the writings so that we don't lose all of this information, all this material, when they came to do that, they came and they put that together in what they call the canon of books that we call the Bible that we have today. By the way, the word canon, that just means a standard of measurement. It was how they evaluated and vetted the books that would become a part of our Bible. The Old Testament canon was put together uh, and determined by 425 BC. So this would be many, 400 years or more before Jesus was even born. By the time of Ezra, they put the Old Testament collection of books together. The New Testament was determined by several church councils, including the Council of, of Carthage in AD 397. So about 400 years after Jesus was born, uh, they put the, book to, the Bible together. And the early church used four criteria or canon measurements to determine the, the, the ability or the, uh, the canonicity of a New Testament book. The first one was every book had to be written by an apostle or by one who was closely associated with an apostle. Not just any writer got to write a book included in the Bible. Secondly, the contents of these books were revelatory in nature. They revealed God. Thirdly, the books were universally recognized by the church in their teaching and preaching ministry. So tradition had passed these books down for 400 years. And then fourthly, these books were considered inspired because they bore the marks of inspiration. And they used these four criteria to examine a lot of books, and many of them did not make the cut, to be honest with you. They were true, they were accurate, but they were not, did not meet this level to be included in what we have the Bible today. Now, the last thing I want to look at today is the accusation that there are contradictions in the Bible. And we've probably all heard somebody say that. You don't believe the Bible. There are contradictions in the Bible. When someone says that, ask them what a contradiction in the Bible is. They will not give you one. Uh, more than likely, they don't, they don't know what they are, but they, they think they're there. Uh, the Bible, does the Bible ever contradict itself? 
The first week we talked about the Bible, we said that the Bible was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And you know, it would be easy to imagine that there could be some contradictions in the Bible over that many people over that much time. But the reality is there really aren't real contradictions. There's a guy named Bart Erdman who has pushed this theory in recent years. And uh, Bart Erdman is uh, not a a scholar in the way we've been talking about scholars. He's a critic, a skeptic. But he was on Stephen Colbert, and and Stephen, I'm not a big fan of him, but but he does believe in the Bible, uh, so he says. So uh, he said, now tell me the example of the contradictions that you're talking about. And so the best shot that Erdman had on national television, he said that he, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, there were some contradictions in what he said. See, each of the four Gospels record different things that Jesus said. And there's a clip on YouTube, obviously, you can look at that as well. But the reality is that none of the things that were said or recorded Jesus said contradict the other. We know that there were seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, actually, and that each gospel writer shares his perspective in what, what they heard and saw. Now, if the apostle or, or if Mark, the writer, were to say that Jesus died and Luke were to say that he didn't really die, that would be a contradiction, right? But collecting what Jesus said into one uh, collection in the gospel is not really a contradiction. Jesus said, Mark said that Jesus said something, and then Luke adds that he said something else, and John adds that he what impacted him when he heard on the cross, but none of them are suggesting that the other is wrong. There really aren't a lot of contradictions that people could even point to, let alone find any credibility in. Check out this really short video from scholars who are talking about potential conflict or contradictions in the Bible. One more video. One of the issues people often raise is the question of apparent contradictions between the Synoptic Gospels, where there's a parallel story. For example, uh, Matthew tells the story of two blind men being healed, whereas in Mark's account, there's only one blind man. How can we get this contradiction? The vast majority of these apparent contradictions, however, are quite easily resolved. Uh, Mark describes only one of the two uh, blind men, the one who is most prominent, obviously, or perhaps even the one who became a disciple of Jesus and became prominent in the later church. So most of these apparent contradictions are, are quite easily resolved. Had every single account given us exactly the same detail, we might have accused them of some form of collusion, of having gotten together and carefully planned out how They were always going to tell the story with the exact number of details, but then one doesn't have independent testimony at all. It's natural when you have multiple eyewitnesses to the same event, you're going to get different perspectives. And that's okay, you want that. What you're looking for is a core to the testimony that's the same, that's consistent, even though there may be some variation in the incidental details. If you're in a court of law and you have multiple witnesses come in and testify to the exact same thing, the first objection that's brought up is to say collusion. They got together, they orchestrated their testimony and their credibility is shot. Yeah. You know, the world is not going to attack the Bible. And the reason we're talking about this is because I want you to feel confident that the Bible you have today is the Word of God. You can stand behind it. What it says, it means there are no real contradictions there. And the world is going to do anything it can to undermine and dismiss and diminish the power of the Word of God. It's important for us to know today that their arguments, none of them are truly credible. 
Now, most of us are not going to be biblical scholars, obviously, but we can research those who are, those who have come at the Bible with, with real honest skepticism. Uh, guy, the, the last guy we saw, his name Lee Strobel, and he was a, a journalist, an atheist, an unbeliever until he began to discover and, and prove, try to disprove the Bible, and he became a believer. There's actually a movie about his life as well that's pretty interesting. And then he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's a great uh, defense of the gospel. The reality is we got to believe the Bible's credible and trustworthy ourselves. And the answer is simple. Look at the evidence, examine the evidence, let the evidence lead you to a verdict. You know, several years ago, that title, actually, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, was a, a book written by Josh McDowell, another apologist or someone who defends the gospel. And it's incredible to look, look at those books and to read them and discover the truth that, that maybe we've been wondering about, that the doubts that we might have that can be taken care of and dismissed. So we believe that everything we read is true. Well, today we're going to wrap up. We've looked at evidence textually, the credibility. We looked at the historical accuracy. We looked at archaeology, proving the Bible to be true. Next week is one of my favorite messages on it, to be honest. We're going to look at the Bible scientifically. We're going to look and see what the Bible has to say uh, and how the Bible lines up to science, what it says about creation, about the flood, and about dinosaurs. So I'm looking forward to that. And the reality is, is that the Bible is an amazing book, and it reveals to us an amazing God. In fact, you might wonder, why do we have the Bible? Why, why did God give us His Word? And the reason is that God wants us to know Him. He wants us to read about Him. He wants us to, 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 to absorb who He is and, and be in a regular process of understanding Him better and knowing Him. And in fact, not only did He give us His Word, but more importantly, He gave us His Son, Jesus. And of course, the Bible is, is the story of Jesus from beginning to end. In the Bible, we find about Christ, and we find that Christ is the only way for us to have a relationship with God, the only way for us to be saved. And in the Bible, we determine how do we come to Jesus, and it tells us that we come to Him by believing that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We come to Him by uh, confessing that we are in need of Him, that we are sinful, by repenting of our past, by deciding to put our past behind us, committing to do that, and to move forward and follow Him and then by being obedient in baptism. And that's an exciting way for us to come into Christ, to be born, truly born again of the water and the Spirit. And we're blessed today because we're going to see that visually take place. We're going to see someone go under the water, a sinner, not horrible sinners, but going under the water, a sinner, and coming up washed clean and pure, a child of God. And that's the invitation that I want to give to you today. If you have wondered and had doubts about God's Word, I believe that once you get rid of the idea of your doubt of the truth of God's Word and you know what the Bible says, you've got to respond to Him. You've got to make a decision to follow Him. And this morning, that's what we're giving you the chance to do so. I'm going to be up front over on this side, and we're going to go into our time of, uh, of communion, which I'll explain in a moment. And it's also a time of response as well. And I'm going to be over here by the baptistry, and if you want to talk to someone, maybe you say, I've given my life to Christ, but I've never been obedient in baptism. Or, or someone tells me I was baptized as a baby or as a child. I don't remember that. Baptism is a conscious response, our response to Christ and being obedient to Him. And so you need to know that. You need to have assurance of that to have your relationship with Christ to be firm and sure. So I'll be over here. Again, we're prepared. I know maybe you didn't come prepared, but we're prepared for that. We have clothing, we have towels, we have everything. 
and we would love to have you come and share in this great time. We are going to have some baptism in this service, and we'd love for you to be a part of that if you have not done so at this point. Also, I want to, during that time, of, as we prepare to do that, we're going to go into a time of communion. And communion is another thing. We've talked about that, how we discover that through God's Word. It's not something we made up. It's not something that we offer. It's the table that Christ set for us. And He did so at His last supper. The last time He ate with His disciples, He took two elements of bread, the cup and the juice, and He said, do this, take this in remembrance of me. And 2,000 years later, we continue to do that. As believers, we come and we do it every Sunday. We come forward, we take the cup, and we take the bread. The bread reminds us of the body of Christ that's broken. The cup reminds us of the blood of Jesus that's poured out for us. And we take those as a symbolic reminder to us of Christ's love for us and His sacrifice on the cross. And so if you are a believer, we invite you to come and, uh, and share. You can come forward to the tables and circle back to your seat. If you prefer to stay where you are, raise your hand, and one of our deacons will be glad to bring you communion. Let's pray together as we go to our time of response and the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and Lord, we want to thank you that your word has been proven to be credible. God, thank you for the writers who so many years ago uh, wrote down what they had seen and heard. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired those writers, not just human observation, but, but divine inspiration. And, and Lord, thank you for those who have copied it, who have, who have been accurate, those who have spent their lifetime copying the Bible so that we would have a copy of it today, an accurate copy. Thank you for the proof and the evidence that you've given, the discoveries that have been made, archaeology for scholars who devote their life to, uh, to determine the, the truth of your word so that, Lord, today we could have in our hands uh, the most wonderful book that's ever been written, the Word of God, and we can find truth in that. And Lord, help us to respond to what we read and know. Lord, just now as we go to a time of communion, we want to thank you that your Word tells us what that's all about, that Jesus gave it to his disciples, and that your Word commands us to share in that as a constant reminder and a refresher of our relationship with you, Lord. God, may you bless each of us, help us as we come to the table to do so with open and humble hearts to celebrate Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.